So he replies to this person, and this is the single thing on Twitter this entire year that was the best. Here's what he replied. This is not sexism. Fact. I have roasted more than a quarter million chickens over 15 years. What's your qualifications? You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm Editor-in-Chief Matt Rodbard, here with Senior Editor Anna Hiesel. Today on the show, we have Helen Rosner, a journalist and currently a food correspondent at The New Yorker. We also, later on, I will be talking to Josh G., who is the author of the newsletter Snack Cart. Before we get to Helen and Josh, Matt and I just wanted to chat for a few minutes about what we've been up to this year. Oh, man, this year has gone by very quickly. Did you cook anything this year? Yeah, I made some things this year. Uh, We've had so many great books that have come out over the year, and I've found some time to actually do some cooking this year. Incredible. Did you edit any articles this year, or or not really your thing? Not really my thing. I've never edited an article. I just do podcasts. That is a lie. We we edit stories all the time, Anna, and I feel like um, sometimes stories uh, are really fast and they they go up in a couple weeks. But oftentimes we spend months around these these stories, uh, and we really immerse ourselves in in the kind of the, the narrative. Uh, we we work with writers. Uh, we have rounds and rounds of edits. So we wanted to kind of take some time and talk about some of our favorite stories of the year. Anna, what's your first one that you're thinking about? One story that I really loved working on this year is called Do You Eat Dog? And it's by Solejo, who has written a lot for Taste. She also is just named as the San Francisco Chronicle new restaurant critic. Let's pause there and just like San Francisco Chronicle got their shit together finally. She's going to be awesome. I mean, I'm crazy about her writing. I can't wait to read her writing about restaurants. But anyways, she wrote a piece for us about eating dog, which sounds on the surface like it would be uh, like dangerous waters. (laughs) (laughs) But she wrote about it so carefully. um, And so it's kind of unpacking why it's such an overblown generalization. I know. And and when she brought the idea to us, I think we we really did have a bit of a, a conversation about how do we frame this and not make it feel like it was some kind of salacious clickbait. I, I, I think that piece will, will, will stick around for a while. I hope so, definitely. Another piece that I really loved working on was with Hannah Georges, who's now a staff writer at The Atlantic. Um, her piece is Ethiopia and Eritrea's Long History with Lasagna. And she talked about why lasagna is such an important part of Ethiopian and Eritrean home cooking. So there's like a colonial past. Is there like a tie to Italy in some way? Yeah, it all starts in the 1800s with Italian colonialism. And it kind of is a story of like reclaiming this this thing that came out of this really ugly history, but making it their own and really like weaving it into the food culture of these two countries. Yeah, and there's a really killer recipe there, which brings up the book. Yeah. The book. Let's announce it. We haven't actually properly announced the book. So let's do it on the Taste Podcast officially. This year we wrote a book about lasagna. And the funny thing about books is when you write it in the year prior, like 2018, they come out like a year later. So it'll be out in the fall of 2019. What about you, Matt? What did you work on this year that really resonated with you and that has been sticking with you? Well, we've we've had a, a number of, of kind of food histories. And, I, and if you look on the homepage of Taste Now, they'll be up there along with some of our favorite stories of the year. But one of my favorites was a story titled, Whatever Happened to Sun-Dried Tomatoes? What did happen to them? They were in like every pasta salad I ate between 1994 and 1998. And even before then, Priya Krishna, the the author of the piece, who who writes for often for the New York Times and has a column at Bon App, uh, wrote beautifully about this kind of quirky food stuff that in the eighties and the early nineties was was hot, was in all the major restaurants, um, was considered um, exotic, uh, not just for its its kind of burst of umami, but because um, it just had a cool color and added color and shade to kind of bland dishes. And you had to go to like Dina and DeLuca to get it. Exactly. It was considered, it was packed in oil, you you know, it was imported from Italy. 
Uh, but this this piece is great because she interviews pretty interviews um, some of the the major lights leading lights in the food journalism game from that era, including Dorothy Kalins, the founding editor in chief of Savour, David Camp, who wrote um, a book called The United States of Arugula, covered food history in America, and she gets some great quotes from Ruth Reichel. I love that. That's perfect. Ruth's quote is, "They are the example of all the worst qualities of tomatoes." She says firmly. Hard, chewy, not sweet, and without any of the lushness you want in a tomato. Wow, I do not buy that, Ruth. I'm sorry. I love sun-dried tomatoes. Oh. They still taste good. Yeah, I, I have to disagree. Oh, man. I had another really good story I wanted to point out. It's actually not a story. It's a column. It's from J.J. Good. Uh, the column is called America's Best Worst Chef, which I think is very appropriate. Because J.J. Good is known um, in this building at Penguin Random House as one of uh, America's top cookbook writers and collaborators. But J.J. comes to the conclusion that after these years spent writing cookbooks and, and presenting these oftentimes complicated theories on food and these recipes that while they work, would you actually make them? That's the question. He's come to the realization that that's not necessarily the way he wants to cook especially given that he now has, at the time of this column, had a four-year-old and a five-month-old. Wow. Yeah. And J.J. doesn't come from a culinary background either. He didn't go to culinary school. But this column, America's Best Work Chef, and this piece that he wrote, Permission to Cook Normal Food, is kind of a meditation on the idea of, like, what is normal food and is it okay to cook it as a food writer? Seriously, I mean, because we have a lot of pressure to cook really ambitious cooking projects. What are what like? What's an example of a normal food? What am I allowed to cook in 2019? Well, I I think he 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 cooks like simple dishes in this column, like the roasting chicken and and steak, and and he oftentimes gets into a very simple technique more so than an actual food stuff. Uh, but I think um, the point of the column is that um, you know busy people cook in different ways and. You know, we love cookbooks, but maybe that idealized world um, is not is not how everyone wants to cook. I love that. I love keeping it realistic, being ambitious, as ambitious as you want to be, but also just having fun. Yes. And I wanted to close with with some of JJ's writing, because honestly, when it comes down to it, this guy is one of our best. When I make dinner, there are two cooks in the kitchen. There's the cookbook combing, magazine flipping, davidlevowitz.com reading Dynamo, who sees sweet potatoes on his counter and envisions perching twice roasted hunks on a mint-strewn yogurt sauce-slathered platter, who takes a ribeye from the fridge and muses over ideal treatments, the frequent flip, the reverse sear, the herb butter baste. Then there's the guy who actually makes dinner. That is our year in food, reviewing our own writing. Is that what we just did? Is that what we did? Yeah, basically. Thanks for listening, everyone. And thanks for reading all year. It's been a great year. Here is Matt talking to Helen Rosner. Helen Rosner. Hi. Hi. Thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. It's so exciting to be here. I, I wanted to ask you on um, just to, we're doing a little year end recapping, but I also just wanted to, to hear about you and how have you been? Oh my God, that's so lovely of you. I've been really good. Thank you. How are you? I'm good. Uh, it's year end and, you know, woo, lists and all that stuff. It's so weird how, like, the end of the year, it feels like time goes so much faster than the rest of the year. Like, it's this. Yeah run-on sentence of a month. I know. It's horrible. Well, I want, I've been reading you. I've been reading you in The New Yorker, and I wanted to... It's been great. You've had such a nice year. So many cool stories, so many diverse stories. Tell me just first, our, our listeners, what, what is your role at The New Yorker? Um, I am the food correspondent, which is a... I don't know. I, I correspond about and with food. Um, no, I, um, uh, I, I write about things related to the world of the edible. Um, 
on a recent episode of the the New Yorker Radio Hour, which is our podcast, uh, David Remnick, the editor of the magazine, described me as not a food critic, which I think is sort of the most efficient way of saying what I do, which is to say what I don't do. Which so. is like everything but review restaurants yes. anonymously. <laughs> exactly. Like that's that's what Hannah Hannah. Hannah does it. So, um, and I, you know, I write about restaurants and I write about chefs and I write about cookbooks and the culture of eating. And I also write about like, you know, agriculture and business. And, you know, as, as I think you and probably everybody listening to this knows, there's, there's almost nothing that isn't a food story. Um, and there's almost no topic that isn't in some way approachable through the lens of food. Yeah. So, you know, the hardest part about my job really is deciding what to write about. Yeah, it's 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 challenging to to like narrow it down to a topic that's worthy of all the time you put into it, right? Yeah, but also just like there's there's everything, you know, like yeah. like do I devote my time to, you know, writing profiles of chefs or up and coming producers, or do I go like find restaurant trends, or yeah. do I? I feel like lately I've been doing a lot of what kind of amounts to media criticism, sort of writing yep. about the state of restaurant writing, um, and that kind of connects to me too, and all of this sort of reckoning that the food industry has been doing yeah. with itself and, you know, kind of everything. I really latched on to some of your home cooking stories because I think those are those are tricky to write because you they take a lot of time. They also um, are done so poorly in other... Mine? No, no, oh, no, no, not yours. Oh no, the, like, the, oh, no, yours are done so well. We're just thrown down. No, we ain't thrown down like that. No, I meant like in general, like people attempted to write home cooking stories and they can come off, I don't know, like un, unprepared or, or untested. But a couple come to mind, um, your your double stock story. I loved that. How did you come to that? Um, well, you know, it's it's interesting or, or at least gratifying that you say that home cooking stories can often be not great. Um, you know, I've I've written about home cooking before. Like I've worked at, at magazines where we primarily covered home cooking and we were writing for home cooks. But um, it's really uh, been challenging to write about home cooking this year, which is, you know, along with media criticism and writing about restaurant sexual harassment and whatever. I also write about like recipes that I make up in my house um, because it's really easy to fall into what I kind of think of as like the stereotypical food blog trap, you know, like every couple of months there'll be some massively viral tweet of someone complaining about having to scroll down past 14 paragraphs of like, you know, my husband and my three sons and our golden retriever went to visit the Great Wall of China and here's the thing that we had for breakfast and here's the recipe. And like, I get annoyed by that because like you can just fucking scroll. Just get to the free recipe that the internet is providing you at the bottom of this blogger's blog post. Um, But at the same time, I think that it is remarkably difficult to sort of produce a piece of writing that stands on its own from a sort of journalistic or literary perspective um, that is connected to a recipe without either like the recipe being necessary in order for the piece of writing on top of it to have any function or direction. We joke at about all. personal memoir plus a recipe. Right, it's exactly. like a like a like a little side eye about that. Well, and I think structurally a recipe can can serve as a punctuation mark right like a recipe can replace a kicker in a story it's like you sort of set up this moment or you set up an experience or a person or a mood and then you like open the door to the recipe and here's the recipe and then it's over um and what my editor has pushed me to do which i i she's amazing and i think she's absolutely right about this rachel aarons she's like a genius i hope everybody gets edited by her it's like the greatest pleasure um which she really pushed me towards and I think it's the correct way to approach this kind of home cooking writing is to have the the written bit, the essay, the piece yeah, um, the on top in. of it, yeah. sort of make its own holistic point that stands on its own and for the recipe to then be an illustration of the point as opposed to a punctuation of sort of the arc. Um, if that makes sense. No, it does. And your two examples are this is a really great way to make a roast chicken and prep it. And this is a great way to start make stock. Start with the box stock and then do a second stock. Yeah. But re- written in a way that has the New Yorker's literary tradition and <laughs> and you just, you're, 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 you have fun with it. I do. Yeah. And, you know, I think that um, they're, they're, I'm very fortunate, I think, that, you know, I can pick and choose what recipes I write about. Right. I, I don't have to. You know, I, the New Yorker is not a cooking site, right? Like, we don't have to have 
10 new recipes every single day. We don't have to produce a cookbook at the end of every single year, um, which means that all of the recipes that I choose to write about can be ones that have the stories behind them, which isn't to say that recipes without stories have no value. I mean, they're wonderful. Like, I think that the measure of a recipe is how good is the food. But there are lots of things that I've cooked that I just, like, don't really have anything interesting to say about except this is yummy. And, like, that's an important thing to say. And I think that those are recipes that people who are interested in things that taste good would like to have and I want them to have it but it's not the same thing as what like we at the New Yorker are kind of providing to our readers who are looking for like a sitting down on our couch or in a train or on an airplane kind of reading experience where you know you're not necessarily going to maybe to cook the dish right right, right. like pull it out and... right like pull up the grocery list on your phone <laughs> at this very moment yeah um and so you know that I've written I want to say maybe four or five in the last year which is not a ton um and what I've kind of tried to go for with them is to explore a concept sort of like you said with the with like the double stock like here's this idea that you know probably some of you are familiar with but maybe not everybody is which is you can use stock instead of water to make a second stock it's called a double stock it's, it's common in restaurant cooking exactly but you really broke it down nice. yeah and it's fucking great yeah. like it's so good and it's one of those things that just like once it enters your cooking repertoire it changes everything it's like somebody introducing you to salt i mean it's so fundamentally transformative of how you cook and i just sort of wanted to be like here's this cool concept and like let's talk about it and break it down and you know that one in particular the recipe that, that runs underneath it like we really struggled with that recipe um because stock is this thing of indescribably infinite infinite permutation i mean like every choice that you make whether it's like you know the part of the chicken that you're making the stock out of or whether the, the mirepoix the celery and the, right, all the onions uh, the, and the but onions. the size of the mirepoix yeah, starts to matter or like the hardness of your water if you live in a in a oh, like yeah. municipality that has hard tap water or soft yeah. tap water it changes the way that the proteins extract from the chicken it's like so intense and of course every cooking experience is infinitely mutable in the same way you know like the humidity will affect your yeah, mayonnaise bake, red baking together. too right um, but there's something about stock where people are like and i think we expect this in a certain way out of recipes like we think like okay this recipe exists and it's going to produce a result that is going to be replicatable mm -hmm. consistently over time and with stock it's always fucking mm -hmm. different and i don't think you I, I kept on trying to write a recipe for stock and it would end up being and i'm not exaggerating like like 10 pages long because I was introducing all of these variables and I was like, you know, um, on Serious Eats, I think it was Daniel Gritzer, though it might have been Kenji, did an amazing breakdown of how the different parts of chicken make stocks taste different or look yeah. different colors and genuinely infinite. Yeah. And of course, in the classic New Yorker fact-checking tradition, our fact-checker, like I had this line where I was like, it's infinitely mutable. And the fact-checker was like, can you prove this? Like, oh my that it's in fact infinite? And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> who, who gives you the back, back up for that? <laughs> I don't know how to prove that, like, my claim, how do you prove infinity? Like, I mean, isn't cooking that a... <laughs> is inf infinite, as you said. I just I think the burner um, potency is something huge that often we try to negotiate in recipe writing. Right. Like, yeah, is exactly. it gas? Is it electric? Is it on full flame? Is it on what is full flame? God, right. We could go. All Does it that. actually touch the pot? Like, right. is it what? Yeah. Uh, I want to hear about your trip to Japan. Um, another piece you wrote about as you visited an MSG factory. <laughs> oh my gosh, I do a lot. I yeah. love that piece. Tell me a little bit more about that, our listeners. Yeah. Well, so I actually was in Japan working on a, a story for a different publication. I was writing a story for Afar, which is a really wonderful travel magazine. Um, and they do this cool column where uh, it's called Spin the Globe, where in each issue of the magazine, they take a, a writer and they send that writer, who in this case was me, on a trip somewhere. And you're not told where you're going until the day before you leave. So I knew about two or three months ahead of time what the dates of my travel were, but I knew nothing else. And then you sort of like land and you kind of orient yourself and you figure out who you are and what you're doing and you write a story about it. Um, and because they sent me to Japan, which was... Had you like, ever been there? No. Oh, my God. And it was a oh, dream, cool, like dude. a lifelong dream. And my husband and I have talked about going to Japan forever. And when they sent me, I was overjoyed. And then, like, my next emotion was, oh my, like, is this a marital betrayal? Like, <laughs> this has been what the two of us have wanted to do forever. Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a long flight from New York, and it's a big time change. And so they, they gave me a trip that was a little bit longer than the ones they usually do. Mm -hmm. Um, so I had eight days to just sort of hang out in Japan. And one of the things that I did with my time there, and originally this was going to sort of be part of my Afar story, but the piece that I wound up writing for them went in a different direction, um, was I spent half a day in this um, kind of like a, a, not like a suburb of Tokyo, but sort of a, 
it had been its own city, and then as Tokyo has sprawled over the last decades, um, it's sort of been absorbed um, to the south of Tokyo. This city, which is the home to the headquarters of Ajinomoto, which is the world's largest creator and seller of MSG. And they have a factory tour. It's free. You can just sort of sign up and do it. It's all in Japanese, which I don't speak, but um, I sort of, you know, you could follow along. They probably had great swag, too, that you could buy, right? <laughs> there was an Ajinomoto gift store at the end, Amazing. which is so cool. Um, and as part of it, you know, like you sort of, it's a huge, sprawling factory campus. You know, there are like, they make a ton of products, like not just straight MSG, but all sorts of, you know, bullions and, and potato chips and things like that. But um, so, you know, you check out the robots doing things and you drive past the fermentation tanks. And then at the end, um, we did this sort of hands-on thing where we, you know, put on clean suits and hair nuts and covered our shoes and went into a clean room. And we filled and weighed and labeled and quality assured our own personal bottles of MSG. Oh, my God, really? It you was, have like your own? It's, I do it's have. It's soap. like a tiny little um, keychain style bottle of MSG that I, I, I put together that. myself. We, we've written at Taste um, about cooking with MSG, which... I think I think I don't want to spoil your story. I think you should look it up on the New Yorker website and read it. But it, it's something that is a little misunderstood, the actual application of cooking yeah. with it. But you do cook with it. I, I do. Assume. Yeah. yeah. Um, I cook with it. A shaker of it. You get it at your bodega. Yep. Yeah. I keep it next to my stove. Um, yeah, me too. I mean, I MSG like fundamentally is kind of equivalent to salt or sugar or sure. citric acid, right? Like those are sort of the four things. And um, yeah. I'm forgetting one of the tastes, aren't I? Sugar, salty, sweet, sour, savory. Bitter. Bitter? Oh, yeah, sure. Okay, vinegar, yeah, I, I guess. Um, but like in the same way that you would sprinkle salt onto something or sprinkle sugar into something, you put MSG in yeah. and it needs depth and savoriness. It's it's actually really weird to me that people don't understand what umami is. Yeah. I suspect that some of this is like a certain degree of like um, – like English language chauvinism, where we're like, oh, it's a foreign word. It must be an yeah. unparsable concept to our American minds. But it's just savoriness. And everybody knows what it's savory like, is. Think about that flavor that you're walking out of your sushi, your Japanese restaurant. That's what I always think about. <gasps> it's also like, think about mouth. the flavor of a mushroom or that like too, yeah, beef stock or like, you know, any any of those rich, meaty flavors. Yeah. And if you actually taste MSG in its crystalline form, like kind of like eating salt off your fingertip where you salt has a flavor, not just a sensation, you realize how familiar you are with the taste of MSG because it, it tastes like chicken bouillon. I mean, yeah. it tastes like Doritos. And you're like, oh, this is in everything. Yeah. And if, It tastes like home. It does. Yeah. And, and we're so hardwired to love that flavor. I mean, breast milk, human breast milk has... Um, like an extraordinarily high quantity of, of glutamic Glutamates, acids. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, you know, from the moment that we're born, like we're designed to seek out this flavor and it's evident in all of our eating patterns across everything. And yet for some baffling and bizarre and kind of just like disappointingly racist reasons, we have as like a like American culture has developed this really antipathic relationship towards something that we actually really love. Based on that really that junk science article from like the 80s that, yeah. you, that you discuss a bit in your piece. But read the piece. I want to sh switch gears to more of the year in review because it's been a pretty fun year. But Twitter, I actually do a funny thing with your Twitter. I actually read your I, – I mute you, so I'm actually going to admit oh, that I have you muted. Okay. But I actually go back and I read you as a Twitter feed as its independent – I'm just, I'm just yeah. like shining. No, I like I think that. I love, I love you and Twitter. It's like a controlled mm -hmm. consumption. Yeah, I, think that I, makes I need a lot it of controlled, sense. but I, I follow through. But tell me, I just wanted, I just, it was like a fun question. What was the greatest thing on Twitter this year that happened to you? To me, personally? Or that you observed. Sorry, let's, observed. let's open oh it up. Oh, my gosh. Um, oh, man. Twitter has been wild this year. Um, well, the greatest thing that happened to me personally was that earlier this year, I um, wrote a story and also tweeted which then led to the story about how um, when I make roast chicken, I use a hairdryer to dry the chicken, um, which I imagine anybody who is already aware of this is sick of hearing about. And I'm I'm slightly sick of talking about it, but I'm also like obsessed with what I'm about to say, which is um, I think people who kind of fundamentally understand cooking and chicken in a certain way were like, oh, yeah, that makes perfect sense. You want the skin to be really, really dry. And a lot of people were like, why are you cooking the chicken with your hairdryer, which evidence is a sort of misunderstanding of how hair dryers work. Um, but there was a, a fascinating um, slice of people who were really mad at me for doing this logical and effective thing who were not concerned that like the hair dryer itself was a problem or drying the chicken was a problem. They were really concerned about like the sand, like the kitchen 
sanitation. The crossing of this. over of right. rooms in your house. Right. Like right. the cross contamination inherent in the hairdryer. And so there was this guy um, who flipped out at me on Twitter, and I can't remember his name, but God, he was just amazing. He was this titanic, amazing man who was like, the recipe that you have for chicken here. So, like, underneath my whole thing that I wrote in The New Yorker about this, I had a recipe for making roast chicken. And I have a per like a peculiar way that I like to cook the chicken too. So it wasn't just about the hairdryer. It was also this cooking method. And I had something where it was like, you know, use an instant read thermometer in the breast and the thigh until they are like, I don't remember what it was, like 180 and 165 or whatever the correct temperatures are um, to tell that your chicken is done roasting. And he was like flipping the fuck out at me. And he was like, you're going to kill everybody who eats this. And I was, and like, everybody knows that the right way to do this is you just rub oil on a chicken you put it in the oven you cook it until such and such a temperature and then it's done and I was like wow thank you dude um and then he started crazily doubling down and I I love the double down it's great I'm I'm setting this up improperly but I think what you sort of need to envision here is like this man who I guess in his twitter history he has titanic um, of a man you said yeah well like he's basically like tweeted angrily at like fios internet service (laughs) and he's tweeted angrily at me and that's it like that's his entire internet history um let's unpack his like his like the sanitation thing well he was he was really upset because according to like some fda guide handbook the temperature that i had said was like five degrees less Mm. than what the fda says is safe consumption but when you take the chicken out of the oven it rests for five minutes and the temperature continues to rise and you hit it and you're fine and also the fda like wildly over airs on the side of safety i mean like they don't let us have good cheese right like they're not really looking for culinary quality right they're looking for sort of plausible deniability for lawsuits are not in place in france and italy and japan and everywhere else and everybody's like doing fine yeah everyone's fine so okay here here i found the tweet so like this guy chris um i i like responded to him kind of sarcastically when he was like just rub it with grapeseed oil and bring it up to temperature and blah 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 and i was like oh my god you know thank you finally for showing me the truth, like, how could I have been blind for so long? Which is, you know, not super flattering to me that I responded sarcastically, but it's the internet. Um, And somebody responded to me kind of implying that he was mansplaining, um, which, you know, he's a man and he's telling me how to do this, and who knows if there was a gender component or not. But By definition, it was close to that. Yeah. Um, So he replies to this person, and this is the single thing on Twitter this entire year that was the best. Here's what he replied. This is not sexism. Fact. I have roasted more than a quarter million chickens over 15 years. What's your qualifications? It's a real Kenny Rogers there. I know. And I was just like, I mean, it was like the sun coming out from behind the clouds. Like, it was beautiful. And I think that... Like, and I, I, I don't mean this in a mean way. Like, there is such a purity to his rage. He was like, I've cooked, like, like more chickens than the population of the state of New York. Who the fuck are you? Like, I have a method. And, like, of course, it kind of came out that he works at a, like, chicken restaurant and he's cooking chickens uh, in extraordinary volume at, yeah. in a commercial context. And I'm like, I'm making one chicken at a time for a dinner guest. But, um, God, like... I've cooked over 15 million chickens or, well, no, sorry, a quarter of a million chickens. I'm wildly misrepresenting. But it was a high amount. Oh, my. Like, I, I don't know. I was just, it delighted me. Let's. Um, yeah. I, I love that memory. <laughs> was Twitter that what you is were so setting great. me up to talk about? I feel like you could. I don't know. What was your favorite moment? On oh, Twitter man. I don't want to get. I, uh, I feel like Twitter was a tough one this year for me. But I, I enjoy I enjoy Twitter as a news syndication tool. I learn about great content on Twitter. That's kind of what I I'm such a boring answer. I'm sorry. No, I, you turn the tables insane. on me and I'm unprepared. I, I still like have the hole in my heart left by Google Reader, you know? Yeah. And we like, talked about that. I emailed you yeah. about that once, yeah. And and Twitter Whereas, is sort of like the horrible, horrible replacement. Like you know that like that old like I think it's like a Russian folktale of like the the wooden mother that came to replace the like the the real mother who died and she like has an evil glass eye and she like forces the children to do chores and like is just like embodied by the spirit of hell and like that's, that's Twitter, Twitter to replacing Google. Google Reader. Twitter is my Google Reader. Uh, I wanted to close with a couple 
thoughts on cookbooks of the year and and also some journalism just what were three cookbooks that you really um that you were drawn to this year that you've discovered doesn't necessarily have to be new cookbooks actually there are a lot of cookbooks this year that i really really loved um and you know i have it on my mind because i've been writing sort of my own end of year stuff but i think the 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 new books that just for me are like i i think they're wonderful and they're kind of changing the game and they have such curiosity and voice and honesty and personality and point of view um have been seasoned by nick sharma which i just think is it's blockbuster i mean that's just the book of the year like no question for me um anita lowe's book solo which is about cooking for one i think uh is revolutionary in a number of ways i mean she's not the only person ever written about solo eating clancy brown's book about it is mm-hmm. also really joe terrific. yonan had one too joe yonan had yeah. one there's that wonderful essay collection a couple of years ago alone in the kitchen with an eggplant mm. so you know the the notion judith of, jones right she had an entire book about it yeah um you know the notion of eating on your own is not like a new idea but anita Lowe's perspective on it is just she's so um dark in a way that I love. Like she's there's a self-deprecation that is incredibly funny and empowering and like she has this Valentine's Day recipe that's like a bleeding runny egg on a bitter cheese. I mean it's just it's funny but it's not about like the misery of being alone. It's sort of about playing with the expectation that one ought to be miserable and really riffing on that. Yeah, and she she really leans into like that concept right of the misery yeah. or the how it dining alone um, is a big bummer. Did you get to the part about the floating corpse? Yes. God, she describes in the head notes one of the recipes how she and a, a date were like walking along the Hudson River and saw a floating dead body and then they went out for dinner and like here's the recipe for that. And then <laughs> I love that. We broke up the next day. I, I think know. it's like but the other thing is that the food is fucking epic. I mean, Anita is one of the great restaurant chefs of the last 20 years years. yeah Yeah. and it's restaurant caliber food and it's scaled for one person which is so the opposite of how most restaurant recipes work where like you know this is like you know make the chicken stock for 500 people or whatever and she's like you know i made for example like she has this incredible recipe for potato gnocchi with um mortadella and pistachios and peas and it starts with like take one baked potato and microwave it and then scoop out the flesh of the potato and make your gnocchi and it's like it blew my mind to just make one portion's worth of gnocchi there's not enough for seconds and it's perfect and it's efficient and it still uses like 70 pots and pans yeah because... it's it, that's a one beef <laughs> like... i have with that book that there's a lot of prep but i mean i i love it's a cool book for sure it's such a great book yeah and then you said three but i'm i think i i don't know i love um feast by anisa halu the food of the islamic world is just like wonderful there's like middle eastern cuisine and the sort of middle eastern pantry have been so at the forefront of trendiness right now and her book is such a deep and rich kind of historical and sociological look at the the food of the islamic world yeah, the quoted really subtitle yeah name. it's a beautiful book it's a phenomenal book um and then god i think i had there's so many no, it's such a good sharing. year yeah it was a great year and and i also wanted to know um where are some links, some some story? I'm calling saying links. Where are some links oh. that you clicked? Some links that I clicked. Yeah. Um, some stories that that you found um, to really be interesting, either in the food media world or food adjacent. Well, you know, the the food media world sort of loves nothing more than to look at itself, and I am definitely. Um, I'm definitely guilty of that. And I like writing about food media also. I mean, I, like I said, I kind of end up inadvertently doing what's a sec- uh, like effectively media reporting and writing about restaurant critics and things like that. But um, I was speaking earlier today with a friend about this piece that HuffPo ran back in October that I think didn't get enough attention. Um, it wasn't, I think, in like their food section, which maybe is why it, it missed a lot of people's radars. But they did this incredible stunt that um, my friend was saying was like worthy of Spy Magazine at its finest, which absolutely was where they called a whole bunch of high-end New York restaurants and pretended to be Harvey Weinstein's personal assistant and were like, Mr. Weinstein would like to come in tonight. Do you have a table for four? And like recorded how all of these fancy New York restaurants responded or failed to respond to this. And it was fucking incredible. I mean, it was hilarious and like ballsy as hell and just exactly the kind of brilliant, like, you know, put your money where your mouth is. Like we talk 
all day, all fucking day about, you know, what is the responsibility of like a diner, a chef, an operator, a restaurateur, a critic, like, but this is just absolutely like brass tacks. Like, will you let this man into your restaurant? And they called Danielle, they called um, Blue Hill at Stone Barns, they called Minetta Tavern. And almost everybody like in some way, shape or form was able to get a table for him. There were a couple of people who didn't and I wish I could remember who they were so that I could like laud them on this podcast episode. But, you know, I, I remember like Stone Barns is one of my favorite restaurants in the world. And I think Dan Barber is a genius. And I think that what they do is is a moral good as well as a culinary good. And yet when some person from Huffington Post called them up at like two in the afternoon and said, I'm calling on behalf of Harvey Weinstein, do you have room for four people tonight for him they were like yep we can fit him in 8 p.m and you know i mean i don't know if you've ever tried to get a reservation there but that's like a three or four month out process yeah so you know it was like makes you think yeah i I wonder yeah i I would like to go uh, go back and read that story and see how how they actually phrased it and just really i think it's it's great that you bring that up because i I was unfamiliar with that story and like it's one of those things where like it's really funny it's really fucking ballsy it's super stunty and it reveals the darkness of everybody you know i mean we all have these disgusting dripping blackened souls and like it's right there the minetta tavern one in particular too and like oh yeah fuck that they um the they they were like I guess the way the receptionists or the the um the reservationist uh, responded to that call was like oh this isn't the number he usually calls from he usually calls from the office and the HuffPo person was like oh yeah like some excuse like we're calling from another phone or something and they were like okay cool well I see here that like what Mister like you know it's whoa been, like they hadn't even they opened ha- up a paper I no, had they no were, idea they were just like you know like like we can see here that like you know mr weinstein prefers to like sit at such and such a table and do da 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 so i think we can accommodate that and like it was all right there and this also dovetails with my own personal interest in the sort of secret parallel sphere that the wealthy and powerful inhabit you know that like we walk around in our regular lives and they have this whole other universe with like secret phone numbers and no like, fucking rules how about no that no fucking rules and yeah. like reservationists to remember that they like sparkling water and like nobody ever remembers that i like sparkling water and like <laughs> what is that like and also you can be harvey weinstein and still get a table on four hours notice at blue hill at stone barns uh, speaking of anita i actually i had her on the podcast oh anita low and sorry the, the segue is this um, and it's related to restaurants and their secret weird world. Um, you tweeted, close the damn restaurant about oh. the spotted pig. And I brought it up to Anita during in a live event with conversation at Books Are Magic. We talked about it. It's great. Go back. It's a couple podcasts uh, back of this one. But hey, that restaurant's still open. What's up with that? The spotted pig? Yeah. I don't know. There are complicated forces behind everything, I think is the short answer. Um and, you know, Babo is still open, too. And I think some of it might be because the demand is there and some of that might be because its proprietors don't want to close it. But I think there's also like they have leases and they have financial obligations and they might have investors who are like fucking furious about everything that's happened, but are also like don't want to cut and run yet. I mean, I have gotten a lot of flack for that tweet that I put out. Like, I think I you know, when it was announced that Gabrielle Hamilton was going to be partnering with Ken Friedman. And that, of course, ended up being sort of an abortive partnership. But I tweeted, just shut the fucking restaurant Mm down. Um, Not to backtrack on that sentiment, because I believe it fully and forcefully. I felt like you were backtracking. No, well, what I was going to say is, like, I meant it in a sort of glib and fairly rhetorical way like hey twitter how about that right but like you can't just shut a restaurant down any more than like you can say like you know like we're gonna cut off diplomatic relationships with france like these things are complicated and and even if i want to be able to just like you know drop a a portcullis down over the door and be like fuck all y'all like that's just not how it works it's not how real estate works it's not how businesses work it's not how the the culture of this sort of retail situation works um yeah, it's still open, but yeah. I don't think that means anything. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. It, it, it. Actually, the symbol of it open, it doesn't take anything away from the writing and reporting that's been happening and will continue to happen into 2019. Yeah, I mean, I think that, like, I don't think that people should be outraged that it remains open. I think they should be outraged if it continues to remain open without Friedman making any gestures towards making amends or reparations for what he's done or if like celebrities start flocking to it or if you know some tv producer decides we're going to set a tv show there i mean like those are things to start 
interrogating and becoming concerned about. But the mere, ex- like, the mere persistence of something is, like, you know, I don't think getting angry on Twitter has ever really shut down a restaurant, and I don't think it should. Um, I just, I don't know. It's all complicated. 2019 may offer a little more clarity into this topic? I don't know. Of closing restaurants for bad people? I have no idea. I genuinely don't know. I... Um, I was just reading today uh, Pete Wells' review of The Four Seasons, which, you know, ran in the beginning of December, um, where he opens with five paragraphs outlining all of the legal and social complaints that have been levied against Julia Nicolini, who's the maitre d' at The Four Seasons and who, like, has been sued multiple times by female employees for harassment and discrimination and um, also wound up pleading guilty to a charge of assault when he groped a female patron and she called the cops on him in the restaurant. And the restaurant, of course, closed for a while, and now the grill is open where it used to be, and the Four Seasons recently reopened in this new space. And, you know, Pete's review opens with the assaults. You know, it opens with, like, the litany of negative attention that this guy, through his chosen actions, has brought upon himself and his business and his employees. Um, and I don't think that restaurant's going to close, you know? Like, when Hannah when Hannah Goldfield... Uh, the the critic who I work with at The New Yorker wrote her review. She mentioned that when she was there for one of her her um, review meals, she was in the dining room with Henry Kissinger at one table and Charlie Rose at another. So, like, you know, I guess there needs to be a clubhouse for assholes, yeah, right? It, it, like, fine, they've got their room. Like, you can go there. But I don't know. I don't want it to be illegal to be an asshole. I just want it. To, they have their club. People, yeah, I just don't want it to carry a reward. Two big stories that you're working on for 2019? Yeah, but I'm not going to tell you about them. Hint? No, no, it's jinxing everything. Okay. Helen Ronser, thank you for joining the Taste <laughs> Podcast. Thank you for having me. Here's Anna speaking with food media watchdog Josh G. Josh Gee, you are one of the people I know who probably is the most well-read on the subject of food. You're not a food writer or editor in the traditional sense. Can you tell us where you work? Uh, I actually uh, work at the MTA. Uh, <laughs> yes, I'm very excited to get all of your feedback about the state of the subways. So um, send, it, you, send it my way. You also have a really smart, incisive, really comprehensive, often very funny newsletter called Snack Cart which is kind of a digest once a month or so of everything that's happening in food. Food reviews from Los Angeles to Chicago, D.C., Boston, New York. So you, more than anyone else I know, like have a sense of what has happened in food this year. What were the big things? Like What, what are the big movements this year? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think this year, it's, it's hard to talk about this year with, without talking about a bit of a changing of the guard we've seen. Um, I mean, the obvious huge events were uh, the death of Anthony Bourdain and Jonathan Gold, who were two of the most influential to me personally writers and in the food world. Um, I think they were partly with them, partly with some other folks stepping down. Uh, The food critic for San Francisco, whose name escapes me for a second, stepped down. We've kind of seen a turnover in some of the food voices that I think we in the media, uh, people in food media love. Uh, but in the wake of that, you know, we've, it, some of them are some of them are sad. Some of them are people who it's time for them to go. Uh, we've seen a, a real rise in a new class of amazing voices, and I think that's been really exciting. I, I mean, people like Samin Nasrat with hot salt, fat, acid, heat as a sort of a breakout TV star. Um, Helen Rossner at the New Yorker, sort of in this sort of essayist thought place. Mayink um, Sen. Uh, who's writing all over the place, but really came out of, I think, Food 52 and is now just sort of everywhere. Uh, yeah, he was at Food 52 and then Munchies, and he's written for Taste Plenty yeah. and for the New York Times. And, of course, Alison Roman, who just, like, you cannot go on Instagram without seeing something that she has uh, cooked. I think that's uh, that's been really exciting nationally, and I'm hopeful, hopefully 2019 we'll see that keep trickling down sort of the local level. I and mean, we already saw that with the new with uh, Soliel the new critic in San Francisco as well. So that's, it's, 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 it's been very sad to see some of these voices sort of go silent, but the new, new class is hopefully going to tell newer stories and, and explore parts of food we haven't heard before. Yeah, there are a lot of questions right now about who will be the next Bourdain, who will be the next Gold, 
but also kind of like if we need new versions of them or if it's kind of like time for a new model and just who will sort of step up and be the big voices. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, actually it was funny. I was just listening to uh, Carb Face pod yesterday uh, oh, yeah. with Samin Nasrat, and she was saying she doesn't necessarily think of herself as the next Bourdain, though certainly that's been bandied about. I, I would say that I think, and uh, I wrote about the little of this in the newsletter, I think sort of all those voices take us to a place where these new voices could come from, right? I think especially with someone like Jonathan Gold, he's sort of one, right? 30 years ago, he was writing about taco stands and, you know, t- Chinese restaurants in the middle of the San Gabriel Valley. And everyone was saying, that's weird, you know, this eccentric guy. And now that's pretty much normal. That's what food writing is. And that's what people think about. And I think that um, completely transformed food writing in all but a, except for a few holdouts. You know, I think same with Anthony Bourdain, you know, it's like food TV completely changed from what from where it was before he started to where it after he started. And there's, I don't think we're going to go back to what it was before. So hopefully I think, you know, rather than a new version of each of them, we're just going to see new voices in a world that they helped create. Definitely. On the subject of Jonathan Gold, I think part of surfacing some of those smaller local businesses, part of what's interesting about that is that especially in the last 10 years, it's so easy to just Google a city and find out like the biggest, flashiest, most popular, quote unquote, restaurants. But it takes a little more work to find, to kind of like do the like work to find like the smaller local places that might not be new, they might not be fancy, they might not be flashy, but that are really, really good food. No, I think that's right. And I think Part of what he did is make it a little bit easier for those places to get the respect they deserve. I mean, even in the New York Times, they uh, a lot of media outlets have sort of stopped having their separate cheap eats column or their like you know ethnic. I mean that that concept is just gone. Uh, and I think he put them on equal footing as the new flashy places. I don't envy. I mean, it's it's I advocate for this a lot in my newsletter when I write about different reviews and stuff that that these places should be highlighted and considered the same as you would a new opening from a hot chef. But I hopefully hopefully that criticism is, is tempered by like I know how hard that is. Like it's it's so hard to be aware of not just the hot new opening and the, the stuff that PR agencies PR agents will send you, but also like trolling blogs, trolling Twitter accounts, trolling message boards to find out, oh, this Burmese place that just opened up in the middle of Ridgewood is totally worth checking out. So Definitely. Yeah. It's and just, I, I think it even takes like going to those like actually visiting those neighborhoods and walking around sometimes because there are sometimes like little family owned places that don't have a website or they haven't really been written about even by blogs. And so it's just like an incredible amount of work. But the people who do it and who pull it off turn out to write great stories. Absolutely. I mean, I think you see that here in New York. Uh, there's a great profile of, in, in Vice of uh, Lagaya Michan recently that was just talking about how she's really viewed it as her mission to tell some of those stories about these about um, not just these restaurants, but the people behind them, right? I mean, 2018 was uh, followed 2017 as a tough year with a tough political environment. And I think especially in the food world, I think you saw a lot of people trying to embrace in our own way you know, immigrant stories, under marginalized communities, underrepresented communities, intersectionality, things that, you know, you know, I think food, everyone's beginning to realize that food is a bit of everything and, and, and like everything penetrates into food, but food also penetrates into everything. And I think we saw that more with more things that you wouldn't necessarily call food writing that were food writing. You may not have called food writing five years ago. Definitely. So this year also was the first year you lived in New York, right? You moved to New York this year. Yeah, yeah. you had emailed me before. You were like, what are some of your favorite restaurants this year? And I, yeah, where, I was, where have you eaten? I mean, even like cool restaurants, uncool restaurants. Where do you like eating in New York so far? Yeah, I mean, it, it's funny. I would, I would very – I mean, I, I don't know if listeners are interested in like the quest to find the perfect Chinese food takeout, which is like an ongoing – effort whenever you move somewhere. Definitely. Uh, but I, I moved into Crown Heights, which has been awesome for me. I've gotten to learn a lot about um, West Indian food, Trinidadian food. You introduced me to doubles, which I'd never had before, which was super yeah, exciting. At Gloria's, right? Yeah, I've had them at Gloria's. I've gotten them at a few other spots, um, A&A A doubles. Um, in terms of fancy places, uh, I went to. I was very lucky to go to uh, Shabu Shabu Macaron uh, once this year, which was probably one of the best just food experiences I've had in a really long time. If you haven't had a chance to go, it's... I haven't. What is it like? 
Um, it's a little small place in Lower East Side. It's a sing. It's it's basically just this one woman. It's twelve seats around a bar, and it's kind of like a a high end sushi place, but it's actually hot pot. So she is you know a very traditional traditionally casual way of eating, where you you know take meat or vegetables and dunk them in a a bowl of broth. But she's kind of doing it for you at the as elevated as that form of food can go, and it's also completely delightful. Uh, I started following her on Instagram afterwards, and she seems completely overwhelmed by her own fame, which is adorable and awesome. Uh, You know, it's just a very intimate experience. It's a lot of fun in a way you could think it would be stodgy, but it's an incredible amount of fun. She's it's basically a single person working behind the counter doing, I think, two seatings a night and uh, maybe one of the more special things I got to experience this year, which was super fun. That's really cool. I was talking to Amanda Cohen on the podcast recently about how tasting menus, like you kind of have to have fun with them and have a sense of humor because otherwise you're just kind of trapping someone in a restaurant for a few hours. Yeah, I think that's right. I always go, it's so fun. I came from a family that was very into food, which is how I kind of I got into it. Um, you know, my grandparents and my parents, but they were very like, they hated the concept of tasting menus. I, and I think it's been interesting to see, I think you see a lot of chefs sort of veering back and forth between wanting to do them to show that you're a big deal, but also recognizing that a lot of for a lot of guests, it's very intimidating. It's not necessarily the most fun. It can be monotonous. I mean, for every like transcendental Alinea experience, you have like 14, 14 courses I can't remember the difference of. Right. And so, uh, you know, especially for folks who might want to, you know, Tuesday night, glass of wine and, and dinner, like you're not going to go do that for 14 courses somewhere. Definitely. Where else have you eaten that you liked? Uh, other places I've eaten this this year. I was lucky enough this year to go to. Uh, it's I write about a lot of these restaurants that I that I never get to go to because I cover a lot of different cities in the newsletter. This year I was lucky enough to go back to L.A. where I used to live. I can never go to L.A. without eating a chitlada. If you, I mean, I feel like everyone who's gone to L.A. has gone. If you have not, if you go to L.A. and don't go, you are committing criminal malfeasance. Uh, it is continues to be just one probably the best Thai restaurant in America, maybe the world. Uh, including Thailand, it's uh, unfortunately I believe this. It was this year that the head chef who helped opened it, uh, who opened it, passed away. The loss of a kind of not a celebrity chef per se, but one who was absolutely beloved by uh, the community. That that being said, the food is still excellent. All uh, you know, the team that is there have been doing this for a long time. Also, your best place if you visit LA to see a celebrity because they all go there. Um, I also got to go to Chicago where I could eat at um, High House, which was a new Vietnamese restaurant in. I'm so bad at Chicago neighborhoods because I don't live there. Uh, like the Logan Square area. Uh, really great place. Newer. I think there's kind of been a, a spate of newer sort of higher end Asian restaurants in Chicago, which isn't always the most out there and adventurous food city. So that's been, I think, a really neat trend there. That's great. What were some pieces that you read this year that really stuck with you over the course of the year that you think you'll be thinking about next year? Yeah, I mean, I think I've got a couple of individual pieces. I would say one thing that I've that will definitely be sticking with me is a lot of the pop-up sort of media outlets that it started this year. I feel like in this year, the New York Times did a big profile on it, like kind of over the summer, especially in food media. You saw, I think, filling the gap that a lot of sort of legacy brands that maybe in 27 didn't make it out of 2017. Uh, we had pop-up magazines, uh, Dill, Cherry Bomb, even honestly, places like Taste or Food 52 stepping up into that void with more interesting and engaging s- content. Um so subscribing to fancy artisanal magazines is is a, a my passion, and my girlfriend really wants me to stop, but I will not. Um, individual pieces. I mean, it's it's pretty tough to talk about this year. I mean, everything that was written in, written in Jonathan Gold, every obituary of Jonathan Gold was amazing. So, you know, everyone in the food world wanted to contribute their own memory and some of the stories. Everyone had a wild story about just like meeting him up, getting picked up in his truck. Totally. I, it, it was like, it, I feel like for a degree, it was a degree how, how you made it. I was also amazed at the degree to which everyone seemed to have a favorite article of his or a review mm-hmm. and how few of them were the same. Like everyone seemed to have different things. And that was, that was just a chance to reread a lot of his classics, but also, you know, just some of, you know, obituaries tend to inspire amazing writing. And so unfortunately, we lost some really great people who inspired that. Other trends this year, you would, you know, maybe a story, but it's you can't talk about this year without hairdryer chicken and talking oh, about yeah. Helen, uh, her story about that. If you if you have heard about hairdryer chicken, you need to really go back and read her New York Times. I mean, sorry, New Yorker piece about what it was like to be in the center of that and how sort of people got so mad 
uh, kind of all of the extreme emotions, like really excited about that, really angry. <laughs> it, people freaked out, and, it, and it's really hard to look at it without, you know, you. It's I think so. She mentions she calls it out a little bit, and it's really hard not to notice that, you know, a a woman doing something like that, something that Alton Brown would have done, and be called like a super cool genius kitchen hack because it totally works. By the way, I did it for Thanksgiving. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she was not allowed. She necessarily wasn't allowed to, and especially as it got more and more viral. So definitely check that out. Also, if you're making fried chicken or any kind of chicken, you should totally do it. Um, there was another great story that I don't know. Um, didn't get as much attention, but I really, really enjoyed. Um, I, and I'm going to – I might get this name wrong, but Andy Barangni, uh, he, he did his piece for Bon Appetit on cooking and identity that was kind of about how – when he started cooking, it sort of enabled him to embrace both his sort of, you know, his identity as a as as, a, as gay and also his identity as an Iranian, and sort of talk more about uh, really discovering who he was and embracing who he was. Things he hadn't been proud of himself, he started cooking, and I just thought like there were kind of a lot of stories like that this year that I really really liked. Definitely, the story behind the kind of creative mind who's creating these recipes. Totally, right? And how, you know, making stuff can help us. And I, I certainly feel this way about something as like silly as my newsletter, but like making things can help you explore a little bit about who you are and find parts of yourself you didn't have before. Also, late in the year, but a pace, and, and, and I'm not just totally being a homer, but it's something that stuck with me a lot, is that especially I think for people who read a lot of food media, you we think of food stories like that and say, oh, it's this amazing thing. Uh, you guys and Taste published a piece that I thought was really amazing. Uh, I cannot remember the artist's name, but it was What If Food Doesn't Bring Us Together? Oh, yeah, by Tina Vasquez, who is um, a reporter who writes about immigration a lot. And she, yeah, she wrote this essay about being um, a Latino woman who moves to North Carolina and kind of like experiences racism firsthand and sees kind of like the strengths but also the shortcomings of food as a way to kind of like create community and break through boundaries. Yeah, I think that was um, I think that was really good. I mean, I I really like that as a counter to I think a lot of food media, certainly like your I mean, something like People talk about Anthony Bourdain a lot, a lot in this vein, or you know the cliche of all we if we all sit around a table and break bread together, everything will be okay. And I thought that piece was a really needed, and maybe not talked about enough corrective to that idea. You can enjoy someone's food and not enjoy them as a person, and and you and not accept them for who they are. And I thought she explored that very poignantly, and it was a sort of depressing but also really well told note to include. So those are those are some of the ones that jumped out at me as I was thinking about it. There's been um, yeah, probably been some others, but definitely. Well, yeah, there have been hundreds of others, right. I'm sure. But what do you what do you want to read more of in 2019? Like, what gets you really excited when you see it pop up on the New York Times cooking section or Bon Appetit homepage? Yeah, totally. Um, probably, I I'm excited to see more of. I'm, I'm obsessed with. I mean, one of the reasons I do the newsletter is how much I have a love of local media and and local mm-hmm. cities. I'm hoping that more of this kind of either intersectionality, either sort of more of this kind. I mean, some of the local cities haven't quite gotten into embrace the Jonathan Gold. You know, everything deserves to be the level of get everything is worthy of exploration. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping we'll see more of that. I'm hoping we'll see more reviews. I mean, I know reviews are expensive; they're hard, but I do think they are important, um, especially in a world in which we're trying, we're struggling to now do reviews in the wake of a lot of the sort of. Uh, me too, and horrible things of 2017 that continued to 2018 and will continue forever. But I think it, this is a time when we need reviews more, not less, because just because they're harder to make and because we're trying to put food and restaurants into increasing context. And that's um, so I'm hoping more national outlets will try that, and I'm hoping more local outlets will embrace sort of the those trends. I have to ask: so when you're reading like a lo- really local news coverage, like really local restaurant reviews. It, of like a city that you don't live in, what makes a good review? Like, what makes like a review that's actually entertaining and interesting to you as someone who might possibly not even ever eat at that restaurant? That is a really good point, and I would say it. It, it definitely. First of all, it takes a couple of months of reading them to get the scene a little bit. You start to reference. I mean, especially like you know, understanding restaurant reviews are very heavily based on cities, so they'll use neighborhoods as shorthands. They'll use restaurant groups are shorthands and it took a while to be like I don't know where that place is or what this means right like 
if you didn't know what Williamsburg meant, half the reviews don't make any sense. Uh, I think a, a great review uh, does two things in my mind. Um, it gives a really good sense of place, right? Like I don't have to be there, but I can imagine myself there or understand there. And it, I mean, it makes me understand something better than I would have otherwise, maybe more universal. I think that I used to, I was obsessed with Roger Ebert when I was uh, younger. And he talked about that a critic's job was to understand what the, the artist is trying to do better than the artists themselves and to put that artist's work into context. And I think uh, even in some of the Jonathan Gold, I remember Roy Choi saying this in his obituary that he said Jonathan Gold got what I was doing more so than I did. I was just making tacos and he really saw where that fit. And I think a really great review and like, that's hard to do, but a really great review does that. A really great review helps me understand food better, a place better, a person better, and more so than just – and I think it, it – I've now written a few reviews myself – more so than just, you know, come here, get the chicken, don't get the, don't get the fish or the service is kind of meh. You know, that stuff is fun to read. And obviously it's very fun to read a negative review every once in a while, but like it's more fun to learn something. That's one thing I always think is must be so hard about national restaurant critics' jobs, like people like Bill Addison who travel all over the country and have to really sum up the best restaurants in the country or the best restaurants in every city. It's just It just seems so hard to so quickly get a sense of the context and the neighborhood and kind of like the history of a place that might make – one restaurant tastes great in Seattle, but like maybe it just wouldn't work as well in Brooklyn. For totally, I, I I don't know how they do it, and I, I think it's it's tough. I Bill Addison does an amazing job. I mean, national reviews are tough. I would say that I think often it's like I think they fall fall prey to trying to make a narrative. Right, you're looking for a trend story, and you start calling out certain kinds of restaurants, and you notice something that like. I would, every time I see national reviews, as someone who reads a lot of local ones, I think, and I, you know, everyone feels this about their own city. Oh, they why'd they review this place and not this place that's way better down the street or something like that? And I think, you know, a city, a city, a local reviewer is looking at the whole city and trying to create a picture for you and call out trends and call out things. A national reviewer is doing that ten thousand feet up and trying to do it in ways that may give short shrift or not be as good as as the local might be able to, but. Yeah, I, and I, and I, but it does maybe give them a taste for the novel, a thing that is more interesting, right? I mean, I think one of uh, one of the best of lists, Boston, uh, the only Boston restaurant that was on there was a uh, noodle place that had just opened, like in the middle of Cambridge, that like was certainly known in Boston, but not on like the list of places in Boston that are amazing. And I think it was really interesting to see. I think it was Bon App's best new restaurants um, to see it highlighted in that way, but I think it's just because it was so novel because it was a particular kind of noodles and a particular guy, right, that it, it broke out nationally, even if it wasn't that interesting locally. Another thing I've noticed, like maybe this is kind of specific to New York, but since there's so many restaurants in New York, I feel like reviewers feel obligated to I, to kind of like create this hyperbole to make the review interesting. So you either get like a really over-the-top, good review, like this is the best thing I ever ate, or you get a review that's like talking about how you paid $100 for something that tastes right. like cat food. <laughs> and you never read, I mean, those are always really entertaining to read, but you never read like an entertaining kind of like middling review of a restaurant. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just, it's hard. I mean, there's a, I mean, I think it's a lot of critics aspire to be Jonathan Gold in some ways, but like they don't just give out those, those uh, Pulitzer Prizes, right? It's mm -hmm. like, it's a, that, context thing. I mean, Pete Wells, the New York Times food critic, gets a lot of uh, he's frequently critiqued that he gives everything two stars. But I kind of feel like you eat around New York City and a lot of things are like, yeah, pretty good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah totally. Pretty good. Not a grazing. Pretty good. And like, I think that's uh, maybe there's a jaded New Yorker degree to that. Or maybe, honestly, maybe there's a jaded food scenester thing, right? I mean, we're all becoming food critics in our own way. And, you know, we're all getting used to trends and no noticing them and stuff like that. But it's a... Uh, I, want, I think it does make it after a while. It's, I think it, it makes it very hard to differentiate or call things out. It all starts to feel the same, especially the diet life of a food critic. I mean, you mentioned Bill Addison. He's eating four or five times a day, every day, traveling around the world, around the country. Mm -hmm. Even a local critic, you're eating out five to five to six nights a week, sometimes twice. And that's, I mean, that's just hard. Yeah, it's hard for anything to kind of stand out when you're so exhausted from eating. Yeah, right? Yeah. 
So it's almost the end of the year. We have like a few more days before the end of the year. What are your cooking goals for 2019? Are you gonna learn? Do you have anything like any recipes saved? Anything you're you want to cook it this winter? Um, yeah, I mean, my main cooking goals for 2019 are to start cooking at all. Because uh, <laughs> I moved to New York, I spent most of this year living in like a tiny studio that had uh, like a hot plate and one of the half fridge things. So I really didn't do a lot of cooking. So now I have a real kitchen. I just spent. Uh, way too much ordering an industrial kitchen prep table that I love like my own child <laughs> and uh, for my kitchen. Uh, and But I'm still in that phase of new apartment where every new recipe costs a million dollars because I have to buy all the spices for the first time. So like totally. use a teaspoon of turmeric. It's like, okay, that will be $10 worth of turmeric. That, will that margin will go down <laughs> exactly, as you accrue yeah. spices. So build, building out a pantry, kind of getting to a place where I can make an interesting recipe that I saw without having to start from scratch. Um, like I've only I've only been in Brooklyn like nine months, but like Pickling, that's a thing I'm going to do. I'm going to be that guy. I'm yeah. very excited to Welcome pickle some to Brooklyn. Stuff. <laughs> Thank you. Welcome Thank to you. the club. Thank you very much. Super excited. <laughs> Maybe even make my own kombucha, but if that happens, please do call the authorities <laughs> or something. Josh, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's a real honor. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Hiesel. The show is produced by Gabrielle Lewis, studio recordings by Pat Stango, theme music by Steve Rydell. Interviews are recorded live at Books Are Magic in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn, and at Penguin Random House Studios in Manhattan. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>